Well, I struggled, as happens from time to time, but especially this week, trying to figure out what I was going to preach on. This is the last time I'm filling the pulpit. It's been a privilege doing that. Thank you for letting me do that, but I'm so looking forward to getting back to our students and Sunday school. I have about 10 sermons sitting on my scratch note of what to do with today, but I want to invite you to Hume Lake in 1990. I even have my hat from them. It's actually my dad's hat, but it is a youth pastor hat from 1990. I don't remember all of them from memorization from that time, nor do I remember any of them word perfect, but I remember our youth group in these colors memorizing on the lawn by the lake outside of the dining hall. We did a lot of things. Uh, Me and my friends, we were often playing beach volleyball there. It's a different location if you've been there recently. We were over by the snack bar, and if you hit the volleyball, the wrong direction. You had to go swimming to retrieve it from the lake, but it was a wonderful place to play volleyball with my friends. But if we weren't playing volleyball, we would cruise over where the rest of the youth group was sitting and working on memorization. And it included our passage for this morning, Colossians 3, Because, I think, I'm sure they had other reasons, they needed 25 verses, and Colossians 3 has exactly 25 verses. We memorized 1 Peter 2, also 25 verses, Colossians 3, 25 verses. I was trying to think through which other verses we memorized, but that was the only two that I could really land on with confidence. And again, I can't quote them word perfect, but the process of memorizing these verses stuck with me and their content. It also helped me understand the connectivity of Scripture, that verses sat in a literary context and were not a standalone single sentence or thought, but they were connected to other things. So join me. I'll take the hat off. Hopefully no foam stuck on my head. That thing's old. But join me in Colossians 3, starting at verse 1, to pick up a little bit of context. We're going to focus on 12 through 17, but I want you to get the rest of the chapter, and I encourage you to go back and read the book this afternoon or this week. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The chapter continues on. As I said, I'd encourage you to read the rest of the book, but I want to focus on those verses 12 through 17 but not without the context. In verse 1 and 2, speaking of the context, it says, since, depending on your translation, or if you were raised with Christ, if you identify with Christ, if you've put your faith in him, if that is your primary designation, the most significant thing about you, as it should be if we're following Christ, not that we're American, not that we're married or not married, not that we're a teenager or that we no longer have hair because we're no longer a teenager. Not any of those things, but Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, or since you've been raised with Christ. And then in verses 3 through 11, it says, put to death. If that's true with you, that Christ has saved you, then put these things to death. They don't belong in the life of a Christian. This is active This is not a passive statement. For those of you that like knowing the theological camps and different things, this isn't Keswick theology. If you see my notes, I misspelled it. K-A-Z-I-G is not what it is. I believe it's K-E-S-W-I-C-K, but I always think of it as K-E-Z-I-G, so I say it correctly. If you don't care about theological encampments, that's fine. You might have seen this bumper sticker. Let go and let God. It sounds great. And there are certainly things that we need to remember that, and it applies to things like, I cannot control the political landscape of our country, nor the world. So I need to let go and let God take care of those things. He is unshakable. And everything in politics, in socioeconomic global politics, excuse me, is completely shakable. So I can let go of that. I don't mean disengage completely, but I can let go and say, God, you got to take care of that. Trust me, they understood that under the Roman thumb. I got to let go of that. Now, what I can actively engage in, I need to pay attention to that. I need to pray for the emperor. And I need to honor him. But then I got to let go of it because God has to play out through history what God is going to play out through history and the individual workings of man. I can let go and let God take care of that. But in regards to my sanctification, Paul goes the other direction. This isn't let go and let God. This is you put it to death. You are saved. He has saved you. Now go take action. And we start to get a little uncomfortable sometimes because that sounds legalistic. But I'm just quoting Paul. Don't come at me when I'm quoting Paul. 
I'm just quoting scripture. I've had that happen in discussions, particularly with people from the Keswick camp, when they come and say, well, that's not what the Bible said. I'm like, I literally quoted it to you. I memorized it back in high school. I don't remember it word perfect now, which is why I read it from my Bible. And you're telling me I'm incorrect. You got a problem then. Because it's what the Bible says. This, by the way, is what is known as the mortification of sin. We put sin to death because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying we do it on our own power. That's not a biblical statement either. This isn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is God has empowered you. Christ's righteousness is already put on you. And the Holy Spirit empowers you to live it out. And so Paul rightly comes to them and says, put it to death. Put it aside. He says this several times in that section. I think it's three as I was reading through it just then. I'm going to point out only one of these. I went through this with the college group on Thursday night. We focused on the verses I'm, I'm running straight through. Uh, today, this morning, we're going to focus on the positive. We were talking about the negative on that one, and I told them to come back. But this one really catches my eye for a number of reasons, but mostly because I work with students where it says, put to death, and then it lists, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, most of the time when the Bible says don't swear, it's not talking about bad words. It's talking about not making an oath because your yes is supposed to be your yes, and your no is supposed to be your no, and you're not supposed to have to double down on your veracity. You're supposed to be truth speakers. It also means that we don't call upon or invoke the name of God to add weight to us. As representatives of God, our words need to be counted on as truthful and accurate, something we need to take a little more serious sometimes. But this is one of the times where it, it tells you, hey, what you actually say from the words to the jokes to the subject matter makes a difference too. Now, it doesn't weigh in on what's a bad word or what's an inappropriate joke or an inappropriate subject matter. It just says, no obscene talk from your mouth. So it is in there. Before you think you don't have to pay attention to that at all, if you're swinging the pendulum away from that, make sure you pay attention to which passage is talking about which thing. There are many other things in there, and interestingly, it goes kind of to the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit when it lands on malice and slander and obscene talk. It's the inward part of us that is sinful and struggling. And Paul says, take it off. Kill it. Set aside. That is your, for a New Year's Eve kind of concept, that is your old self, your old clothes, and you just got a new set of Christmas clothes. So wear the nice stuff. Wear the new stuff. And that's where he goes at chapter 12. I'm sorry, verse 12, not chapter 12. There are not 12 chapters in Colossians. There's only four. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's our main focus today. As we go into a new year, it's almost like setting some new year goals and resolutions. But these are the things that we should actively and consciously think about putting on. Again, this is through the power of the Holy Spirit, something we engage in. It's like the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Same author, same statement. Put this on. When you wake up in the morning, actively think through dressing yourself in these things. Now make sure you put your clothes on too, or it's going to get a little weird when you walk out the door. But don't walk out spiritually naked any more than you would walk out physically naked. Put these things on. It's the positive side of faith transformation. And we engage in this. It's meant to be active, not passive. This isn't just something God has done to us, although that is certainly true. He's secured it, and it has been done to us. Here's the cool confidence boost that maybe you need for the new year. As a Christian, it is happening to you whether you wake up and remember to do it or not. God is transforming you. And he is faithful even if you're a lazy bum. He will make this come about in you. And Paul is still saying, you do this. You put this on. This is what we are. Even as we struggle, and he starts with three things we don't put on, by the way. These are simply true of us. Number one, that you are God's chosen ones. He looked at you and he took you. You are his sheep called by his name. If you have put your faith in Christ, this is a theology you can hang your hat on. It's the theology of election. And it's throughout scripture, it says he chose you. That doesn't mean you're better than anybody else because he said he chose you for nothing about you. But he chose you. Find confidence in that. Because he chose you, he's going to bring about what he intended to bring about in you. And that comes to the second thing. You are chosen and you are holy. Even when you're at your most sinful now. When you are as broken as you can be, and you are grabbing all the old stuff that he just said to put to death, and you think that's the best way to walk around in the morning, malicious towards everyone, at least until you get your cup of coffee, he says you are still holy, and always holy because Christ's righteousness is placed on you. That's your standing. But then he says, now go put on that holiness. So you are chosen. When you feel lowest, when you see your sin and Satan is coming at you and you have no confidence and he's accusing you of not being a child of God, you look back at him and say, but he chose me. I'm not claiming to be worthy. I'm just claiming to be his. But the other part is this. No matter how much you struggle moving forward with putting on these righteous characteristics, you are still holy even when you are failing. If you are a follower of Christ, you're his, and you are holy. And the third one, you're beloved. He doesn't love you any more 
because you are succeeding in your opinion in verses 12 through 17 than he does if you are failing in everybody's opinion in verses 3 through 11. You're actively supposed to be engaged in the mortification of sin, putting it into those things in your life and putting on these righteousness characteristics. But your status as chosen, holy, and loved are unshakable. If you are his, you are his. If you're part of his family, you are, you are his son or daughter, and it cannot be revoked, not even by your own incompetency. And because of that, he says, wake up and put these on. They're already yours. They're already in your spiritual closet. They're already accessible to, to you. So act them out. More and more each day, live like this. And he says, so put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is complaining against each other or another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. And he lists a couple things. This is supposed to be true of us, that we are compassionate. Grace, we need to be the most compassionate people in the city of Santa Maria and in the Central Coast. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, then you ought to be known for this. Now, the people around you that encounter you might not know what to call it, but it ought to be this with whatever description they might go with. Of course, we fail in this all the time. You just get behind the wheel of a car and compassion goes out the window if the person in front of you is an awful driver. We see this and we use it all the time as an analogy at the roundabout. It's comical and tragic at the same time. But it's not only there. Parents of grace, we need to be compassionate with our kids. Spouses, we need to be compassionate with our hopefully most loved ones. Neighbors and HOA, we ought to be the compassionate people. That doesn't mean you let the person park in your spot forever without accountability, but it should affect how you go about it when they're really bugging you. We are to be the compassionate ones, compassionate hearts, that the way we look at this world and in particular the people in it, that it starts with compassion. Kindness. That doesn't negate your personality, by the way. You are who God made you to be, but you aren't what your sin has made you. We need to be kind, compassionate and kind. Humility. We should not be the most egotistical people around. In your workplace, if you have a workplace... You shouldn't be known as the cockiest one. There should be humility there and meekness. You're probably struggling right now to think through what meekness is, and I'm really not going to help you, but meekness. Jesus was. So look to Jesus. He was a leader, and he was powerful, and he was meek. 
Meekness isn't something that combats with those things, but it adjusts them. It affects how you have power. It affects how you're a leader. It affects, if you're not a leader, how you are a follower. It affects everything. It's not a bad word. It's just one we don't understand because we never use it. We don't value it in people. Even as Christians, we really don't. Let me rephrase. At least as American Christians in our time, we do not value this. I could imagine that there was a Puritan that named their, their daughter Meek in some conjugation of the, of the term. But we don't value it. Here's another one we don't value, patience. Have you ever said, don't ask for patience, God will give it to you, and it's not going to be fun. Instead, ask for wisdom, and maybe patience will come along with it. Anything like that? Paul goes straight to patience. He says wisdom elsewhere, I'm sure. I know the Bible does. But Paul says, no, I dare you ask God for patience. Yes, it will be a hard journey, and it's part of sanctification. Put it on. Look God in the face as his beloved in 2024 and say, Lord, I am not a patient person. Make me so. And as I pray that, I will put it on each day. I will think it through just like the armor of God. I will think through I need to be a patient person, even if that's the hardest journey of this year. Lord, I want to be these things, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. Then it breaks it down a little bit more or maybe goes a different direction, but I think partly it's still coming under patience. But bearing with one another. Look around you. These are the people that you are supposed to most actively live this out with. This is what it means to be the family of God and the body of Christ. That we would be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient towards each other. And that we would bear with one another. That if there's a complaint, that we would forgive. That we'd forgive because we know forgiveness. Jesus tells parables about this. Here's my rephrase of what Scripture's saying there. Maybe with a little bit of expansion but I think it fits into it. You can disagree with me if you want to, but this is how I kind of explain it to people, including myself, that we would have the grace to ignore a wrong. You offended me. You stepped on my toes. I know it was not on purpose, but it doesn't change that they really, really hurt. But I, as a person, and I, as a Christian, can simply extend grace to you. I don't have to walk up to you and say, hey, you stepped on that toe. You just say, it hurt. You didn't stomp on it. That'd be different. We've had kids do that. If you work in the nursery, or well, not the nursery, they're not walking around that much, but if you work in kids' ministry long enough, it's going to happen where you're, some little kid's going to look you in the eye and intentionally stomp on your foot, and it hurts. It's a little cute, not in an okay way, but in like, you're this big. It's not going to hurt that much. It's just going to annoy me. What do you think you're doing? But they stomp on your toe. You at least see it with them and their own friends. That's how they, get, that's how they debate. Stomping. It's what we do. Pushing and stomping. When we don't have the words for it, adults do this too, sadly, sometimes. But 
When it's not intentional, I can just say, you know what? I'll show that grace. I know they love me. I know they didn't mean it. It still stings. The sting didn't get taken away just because I forgave them, but I will forgive them. The relationship's restored. That pain is removed because I can just bring it to the situation. I'll bring grace to it. The second one is this, grace to offer when wronged. I will forgive you, especially if you come and apologize to me. If you did stomp on my foot, figuratively or literally, and you come to me and say, I'm sorry, that was an immature response, I'll forgive you. Or if I was the one that was doing the wronging, I'll ask forgiveness. Grace to ask when we've wronged somebody else. I hurt your feelings. It wasn't on, on purpose, but I, I recognize it. I, I, didn't, I didn't miss it, and I want to make sure you and I are okay. I, I'm not going to expect you to just bring grace to it. I'm, I recognize what happened, so I will ask you formally for forgiveness. But here's the last one. Grace to address the most difficult of wrongs. Even if it's a struggle. And grace, the reality is this, because we are broken and sinful people that are still putting on this sanctification in active mode, trying to live it out, there are going to be wrongs that aren't simply overlooked with grace and aren't simply requested grace for and forgiveness automatically happens, but sometimes we have to wrestle through things with grace. I'm working towards that full forgiveness because I'm still living a little bit in verses 3 through 11, and maybe you are too, but I want to live out verse 12 through 14. I'm going to extend you grace, but this extension of grace is going to take me a couple months, not just a quick conversation. And I need you to show me grace to work through this, and I need me to show you grace to work through this, and maybe we need some others to come in with grace to help us work through it. But I've seen all four of those things need to happen. I've seen all four of those things wonderfully happen, and restoration occurs. And I've also seen all four of those things not happen, and that divide just becomes bigger and bigger. That's what Paul is saying there, I think, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord forgave you, or as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul is telling the church in Colossae this because they were struggling with the two. Or at least they needed the reminder of it if they weren't struggling. They were not perfect Christians. Don't ever look in the Old, and Old Testament, well, that too. Don't ever look in the New Testament and think, oh, the church was perfect in the New Testament. Go read Colossians and Corinthians. They were not perfect. But don't assume that Colossians and Ephesians, those churches were perfect either. They had to be reminded of some basic things. If with no context, I just got up here and read 3 through 11 and acted as if this was regularly true of all of you, some of you would be offended. And they had to be told not to be those things, just like we do. Sometimes we need the reminder of what we need to live out, both removing and adding. Sometimes we need to be corrected because we're struggling so much in it. But they needed to be told this. After that, it goes to love. Love binds everything in harmony. 
Here's a glimpse of 1 Corinthians 13, by the way. It's just a little, little quick, not necessarily quote, but thought along those lines. But 1 Corinthians 13 was where Paul really expands it. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, continues on. I'm not going to get it because I'll miss parts. But you can go read it. In the end it says love never fails. Colossians is a little bit like the Reader's Digest version of several of the other letters of Paul, sometimes cut and pasted, by the way. They maybe were doing a little better, but they still needed these reminders. And so Paul does this. There are so many allusions to our parallels to other parts of Paul's letters. It's really interesting when you read it. He says a little bit, a quick version of what he says in Ephesians. He says a quick version of what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says a quick version of a couple different other places where he speaks. And it pops up throughout Colossians 3 especially. And this would be one of them. Love binds everything together in harmony. Colossians 3 also is a very strong parallel to Ephesians 4 or 4 and 5. Really 4, 5, and 6. First part of 6. And then verse 15, changes directions a little. Yes, you're supposed to put this on, but this is more, let it be true of us, may it be true, make it true, is also what he's saying, do this actively. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you go and make this true. But he changes it from put on to let this, let the, a couple of those. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let shalom rule. In Greek, it's Irene. I don't totally know how to say that correctly. Irene. Same thing. Let God's peace, trusting in the sovereignty of God and all of the brokenness of this world, let that rule. Don't expect eternity yet, but bring eternity about as much as you're able to. And where you bump into the brokenness or the fear and anxiety Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Nestle into that. When you're at your most troubled, go look for the embrace of Christ to shore up your heart. 2023 was a tough year. I think we can admit that. God carried us through it. I don't know that 2024 is going to be any easier because I don't know what's going to happen in 2024 in the church's life or your life. I'm not God. And we're all happy about that. So nestle into his peace. Parents, grandparents, parents of adult kids, grandparents of adult kids who have kids. Well, that's what a grandparent is. Family members of all kinds, aunts and uncles. You ever have aunt or uncle worry for your nieces and nephews? You see what they're doing too. You have to run to the peace of Christ to make it through these things. Because if you try to walk without Christ and the confidence that his hand is over it, you will not make it through whatever 2024 faces. No day on this planet until Christ returns is that easy. So let the peace of Christ rule, and if you caught it, in the body. Let it rule in this body. In these hallways and in your relationships with each other and when your life is falling apart, let it rule in us here at Grace. May 2024 be the best year for you and all of us. 
but I don't have the power to bring that about. But we all, Colossians 3, have the power through the Holy Spirit to fall into the peace of Christ and trust in it. That's the command. That's the challenge. Let the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. I think it's the first time it pops up, but it's going to pop up three times and then a fourth time in the next chapter, which I'll, I'll read near the end. Not the whole chapter, just that fourth time. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching, singing, and again, thankful. It's another parallel to a little longer version, Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, by the way. But let the word of Christ dwell in us this year. 2024, grace, let's dive into scripture even more, both individually and collectively. And I would encourage you in a couple things. I saw this last night as I was doom scrolling on social media because I'm a Lions fan. And if you know what I'm talking about, then you know what I'm talking about. Because the end of that game was interesting, especially as a Lions fan. Cowboys fans would have been also mad if it had gone a different way on that. But... I'm doom scrolling and I landed on this reminder. Here's a tool if you want, or a set of tools if you want, if you are not already doing this. Read one chapter in the New Testament each day. And you'll read through the New Testament this year. You'll actually read through it a little more than once if you do it every day. If you, like many of us, have a day where you forget a day, or you only read a verse instead of a whole chapter, you'll still make it through in a year. One chapter of the New Testament. Read three chapters of the Old Testament every day. That's four total. It'll take you about 20 minutes. By the way, if you wake up in the morning and your eyes still need an hour because you're old enough to recover to be able to read, push play on the Bible app and you can listen to it. That counts. It's okay. Make sure your brain's engaged. Three chapters of the Old Testament, same thing. You'll get through the Old Testament in one year with a couple missed days recovery time built into that. So four chapters, you'll get through the Bible in a year. If every Christian read the Bible every single year, we would know it better. It wouldn't make us better Christians in the sense of God loves us more. It would make us better Christians in the sense of putting on the righteousness of Christ, effectively, theoretically, at least. It's certainly not going to hurt you. There's no point in your life as a Christian that you have read the Bible in a year and at the end of the year, at the end of 2024, go, well, that was a waste of time. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, you might not understand why you did that. But even then, it's going to benefit you. It's the most classic book of all of literature. Even if you don't love it or treat it as God's word, and it is God's word, it's going to have an impact on your life. I would encourage you to read it. But here's the other one. This came from a guy, Andrew. I have no idea who this is. I just saw it as I was doom scrolling to everything the refs did wrong. But it was Andrew Heber. I'm guessing had an apostrophe over the first E. But it's soap. It's, it's, it's a tool just to help you think through your, your personal time in Scripture. S is Scripture. Read some of Scripture. O is observation. Make an observation as you're reading it. Oh, it said this. That's an observation. It said that I need to forgive. That's uh, a toughie. But I observed it, so I got to recognize it. Apply would be this. Who do you need to forgive? 
And you might have already thought of somebody. That's who you need to work at forgiving. But if you didn't think of anybody, be ready for it. Because somebody in this broken world is going to do something to hurt you and to wrong you. And you're going to need to forgive them this week. So the application would be this. I need to forgive so-and-so. Or I need to forgive, I don't know who yet, but I'm sure there's going to be somebody. So I will forgive. And then pray. Read it. Pay attention to it. Try to live it out and pray about it. Soap. It's just like taking a shower in the morning and using soap. It's that simple. Whoever came up with it, I have no idea it's been around for a long time. But that's where I was reminded of it. And I thought, ooh, I'm talking about that in just a couple hours. Here's the other one. If you have a phone, put your Bible app on it. If you have a smartphone, put your Bible app on it. If you don't have your Bible app, a Bible app on there, go find a free one. version is the one I use. And then pick a reading plan. And it'll help you check off the box. Now, don't only check off the box. It's the worst way to read scripture. Just to check off the box. I checked off my four boxes today. I'm good. Soap. Observe and apply it. But if we read scripture more, we're going to put on the characteristics of Christ more. It's how we typically work. And then wrapping it up, verse 17. This parallels 1 Corinthians 10, 31, by the way. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever, there's nothing that's not included in that. Whatever you do. Also, another parallel, Philippians 4, 8. The whatever section, go read that. That's how he wraps up the book of Philippians. He says to think about the whatevers. But whatever you do, in word and deed, what you say and what you do, everything you say and do, that's pretty much the whole scope of life. I know there's also our thoughts in there too. Certainly he means that as well. But everything, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in his name as his representative ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5.20 as his beloved a little earlier and his chosen ones, as people made holy who bear the righteousness of Christ in us and who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, do everything in his name. And the third time he says giving thanks. Second time was before when he said to dwell richly and then he said singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks, here it again, giving thanks to everything in his name, giving thanks. And I already pointed out to you, so that, that focus on thanksgiving, that's the repeated one. When scripture repeats things, by the way, it's their way to highlight things. In our modern tech world, we do it with bolding letters, italics, underline, font changes, color changes, all of them where you're shouting at people who are reading your whatever you're typing. They did it with repetition because they didn't have any of those options. Or at least they didn't use them in their writing. They just repeated things. But also it's how our brain works. We catch it better when we repeat it. We don't tend to catch it if we just hear it one time and move on. So maybe they knew something we didn't. Or we have forgotten. Maybe because they didn't repeat it. Repetition acts as a highlighter. He's not done with the focus on thanksgiving. It pops up again in Colossians 4.2, which says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with 
thanksgiving. It's a major focus in this section on holiness that he's talking about, that we need to be a thankful people, that we need to be constant in prayer, is what he's saying in Colossians 4.2, watchful but giving thanks. I'd encourage you if you're available, even if you're doing something later on tonight, join us in the chapel over there at 6 o'clock. We mentioned we're going to finish this year with prayer and start next year with prayer next Sunday at 6 p.m. also. But join me tonight in the chapel. We're going to focus on Thanksgiving. Here's what we're going to pray for. We might add some stuff at the end if we have extra time, but we're going to thank God for who he is. This is just who he is all the time. Thank God for who he is. We're going to thank God for what he's done, not just in 2023, but particularly in 2023. And we're going to thank God for who he has used in our lives in 2023 in particular. That's going to be the focus. Join me. We're going to pray, do, focus on thanks prayer. Don't show up tonight, by the way, and be grumpy if that's all we pray for. Paul just told us four times in Colossians to be thankful. I'm going to lose my patience and maybe not be so meek if that's how you approach me tonight. I know I should, but, and you can point out that I forgot my own sermon today if that's how I, if that's how I respond to you. But join us tonight. That's going to be the focus, the bulk of the time. Just God, we are thankful for who you are and what you've done. That's what we're going to do. Some things to remember that from this if I lost you at any point. You are chosen. You are beloved. You are holy and sanctified. So actively put on the characteristics of Christ. That is Paul's point. And trust this. It's not from this passage, but it's clear throughout Scripture. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually do this and succeed in it. It's the process of sanctification. And God's not against you in it. He's all for you living this out. And so he will bring it about because he is faithful. And he's empowered you with the Holy Spirit if you've put your faith in him. But I would also encourage you, make sure you're in the Bible this year. If you have a Bible app on your phone, make sure it's the one you click often or even most. Pick the right times for it. There's times you shouldn't be in there. If you're getting paid to work and it isn't including reading scripture, then don't be reading the Bible when you're supposed to be doing a different task. But some of you have one where you can push play on the Bible and do that task. Why not? I had a former student that did that. He could listen to podcasts all day or the Bible all day. And he did a little bit of both. But there was a particular time where he's like, I'm cranking through the Bible so much and I'm getting paid to do it and I'm faithful in my job. How awesome is that? Take advantage of it if you can. Those of you who love football, I mentioned it a couple times. One time or one window of time on the commercials, because I didn't care about the commercials, I would read my Bible app and I would finish the chapter before tuning back into the game because, of course, the commercial would wrap up first. Do you know how much scripture you can read during one football game? Just by skipping commercials? And if you have a pause button, you could even not miss any of the game. You can just let the commercials play, click pause, finish the chapter, and read it. You'll finish after the game does, because that's going to be a lot of scripture time. But you're not going to be worse for it. It's going to be amazing. It was something like 20 chapters. It was a lot. There are a lot of commercials during football. There's still a lot of football left to go this season. You could read a lot of Bible in the first two weeks, first, or last month of the season, first two weeks of the new year. Read your Bible. Be thankful. And above all, in everything, live to the glory of God.
Let's pray. Lord, mighty holy, we praise your name. And we are thankful that you love us, that you call us your own. We are chosen. And Lord, seeing my own life and how much I stumble at it, I am thankful that you look at me and have secured that I am holy and you call me holy. But I am also thankful that you are making me holy and that you challenge me to live holy. Lord, may it be true of us here at Grace this year that we would put on your holiness regularly and grow in living it out to the blessing of the people around us and to your glory. And so, Lord, we praise your name. Amen.